and that he is enough in and of himself with no accoutrements, no additions, no subtractions to bear you up in his arms and to get you through life not merely by way of endurance but in victory and peace and joy and triumph by his presence, his love, his companionship in your life. In Psalm 32, verse 7, David, thinking of the sufficiency of his God, says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. In Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul affirms, My God shall supply all your needs through his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul had a very real need, a need that he prayed would go away, a problem that he wanted erased, but the problem remained, but the voice of God came to him. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He is enough. No matter what the problem, no matter how dark the night may seem and how lonely we may become, or isolated it may seem that we are from everything that we need and from the courage and the strength that we require. He is enough for whatever the circumstance. He is the true comforter who draws all who are in need to himself and who comes alongside of us in our hour of need to be with us. Our text says that when there was a need, he came. He did not send a messenger. He did not send a note of sympathy. He did not send a note of encouragement. He did not pat us on the back and say, Now, y'all, cheer up. But he came. He came himself, like one of us, limiting himself to the flesh that he might know how we feel that he himself might endure everything that we face, yet without sin, so that in every experience of life he could not only care, but he could understand and empathize and meet our needs. In John 1.14, most, perhaps the most beautiful poem in Scripture, the prologue to John's Gospel as he describes Jesus, in John 1.14, he says, And the Word, the Logos, the fullness of God, the, the expression of God in human form, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And in this passage, Isaiah 59, 16 to 21, is an affirmation that God's will 
deliver his own and that he is sufficient for our needs. In verses 16 and 17, the reason that he is sufficient is seen because of his righteousness. These verses say, And he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a mantle. God is devoted to the salvation of his people. We saw this morning in Peter's letter that God could have dealt with our sins in several ways. He could just have ignored them, or he could have overlooked them, but he really could do none of those because he cannot deny his own nature and they are contrary to the nature of God. So his real options were that he could either eradicate the race, destroy creation as he did at the flood and start all over again, or he could find a way that the price of separation from God, of punishment that we all deserve could be born so that we might live with him. And being devoted to the salvation of his people, even though it required him to bear the penalty for our sins, that is exactly what he did. When there were lesser matters, oh, they were grand matters, they were matters of great magnitude, but they were lesser than this need. God sent a man. When God wanted to insert himself into the history of the fallen race, he had eradicated the race once. He had started over again only to have to scatter their, uh, them around the globe and confuse their languages so they would not be too humanistic and too powerful. When there were lesser matters, God sent a man, Noah, was the head of a family who was saved and the beginning of a new race. Abraham, when he decided to come into our history in a meaningful way, was called from a far-off land to a land chosen and prepared by God, a land of promise, and there that man became the father of a multitude of nations. When the people needed a king and they had failed so miserably in choosing their own, God appointed a man after his own heart and David began a dynasty and on the throne of that dynasty sits Christ enthroned today. But when this matter came to be dealt with, as Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. On lesser matters, he sent a messenger. He shared a message. But in this matter, God came. God put skin on and tabernacled among us as one of us. 
And the writer to the Hebrew Christian says, we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who was in all points tempted the same way we are, yet without sin. See his righteousness. These verses start, he saw that there was no man and he was astonished that there was no intercessor. His messengers and the sacrifices of the temple and the temporary forgiveness or putting away of certain sins one day at a time could only go so far. And no man, even the priest of God's choosing who was cleansed because of his humanity and his weakness and his sinfulness could really intercede on behalf of the people. And when there was no other solution, his own arm brought salvation he was sustained by none he was encouraged by none and so his own righteousness upheld him and brought him the salvation that he carried to the world when the need was eternal and universal only God could meet the need and yet this this one who stands before God on behalf of the people, the one who intercedes, the one who stands there and pleads our case when we sin. He had to be like us, and yet he had to be above us. He had to be like us, and yet he could not be infected with the disease of sin. And so when the need came that only God could meet, and yet one that required one made of the stuff of humanity. Jesus came. And yet Isaiah saw, as the New Testament writers see over and again, his righteousness. It is obvious in Isaiah time and again that when the phrase, the arm of the Lord is used, it is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10, we read, Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? And then Isaiah 52.10, in the passage immediately preceding the great passage on the suffering and resurrection of Christ, it says the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. They that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And in verse 17, it is exciting to note that he has put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's a breastplate of armor. He has put on salvation as a helmet, and this sounds rather like the passage in Ephesians 6 talking about the armor of the Christian. But notice, that there is no weapon in his armor. And we read in Revelation and elsewhere in Isaiah that the breath of his mouth, the word that he speaks, 
the breath of his mouth is sufficient to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. Hebrews 4 tells us the word of God is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the bones and the marrow, even of the soul and the spirit of a man. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Why is he sufficient? Because of his righteousness. There was in him none of our frailty. He faced everything that we face. He endured everything that you endured and a lot more besides. And yet there was no sin, no weakness, no chink found in his armor. And because of his righteousness, he is sufficient to meet our needs. Then in verses 18 and 19, notice his recompense. You know, to our finite minds at first glance, it seems very strange that love and wrath or mercy and justice would find a marriage in the character of God. And yet, if you will consider the nature of true love, if you will think what it is to really love somebody, you will come to understand that there is no such thing as love without discipline. No such thing as love without discipline. You cannot claim to love your child if you are a parent, if you are so indulgent that you offer no restraint, no guidance, no direction for their lives, if you let them seek their own path in life and do what seems best to them. For the scriptures say there is a way that seems right unto men, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Occasionally as a pastor, I hear parents say, my child is old enough to make up their own mind. I'm going to let them do what they want to about religion. And I shudder, and I say, God, find a way to deliver that parent from the eternal blood guilt of their own child. I have never really known a parent that let their child who was old enough to decide, decide exactly in every case what to eat and when to eat it, where to go and with whom, when to come home, when to go to bed, and other things, for instance, school. Now, friends, I want to tell you, if you're a parent, and down deep in your heart, not by what you say, but by what you do, you've got the idea that public education is more vital to your child than their relationship to God. You better shape up. God, deliver us from allowing our children to decide without any help where they'll spend eternity. You love your child. You will raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There is no such thing as love without discipline. It does not exist. And here in this passage, we see his recompense. The fact that he redeems those who repent demands judgment. The fact that he loves all men demands that righteousness be separated 
from wickedness and that the guilty be separated from those who have been cleansed and pronounced innocent. These verses say, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream or wind, which the wind of the Lord drives or directs. I believe this passage refers to the final judgment that Christ will hand out at the great white throne after the rapture and the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon in the end of time when all flesh of all ages comes before him for judgment. The word coastlands or more literally the word islands or isles occurs in these verses. And in scripture, especially in prophecy, this word is used to denote the farthest reaches of the earth. And what Isaiah is saying that the farthest outpost of the universe will not be untouched by the judgment of God when Christ calls a halt to human existence and when he judges the living and the dead as Peter calls them. I would remind you, if you would look at this passage, that whenever... And just circle that word in your mind or underline it or write it in big red letters. Whenever you strike out or strike back in vengeance to pay back or to hurt another person, whether it's right, the way men count rightness or not, whenever you strike out or strike back, you are usurping the exclusive position of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said when he taught us how to pray that God would forgive us in the same way that we forgive others. Now, you know, that is not really an expression of the fact that God is just going to treat us the way we treat somebody else. But what that really is saying is that when we find ourselves unable to forgive other people, it is proof positive that we are in no condition to receive and accept the forgiveness of God. If you have an awareness of what you are and of how God has loved and forgiven you, where can any of us possibly get the gall to refuse forgiveness? to other people. God deliver us from that mentality. I would remind you there is a stern and solemn warning in Scripture, judge not that you be not judged, for with the same measurement of judgment you use on other people, you will be judged. And how pompous and self-righteous and nauseating to God is it for people to draw their righteous pharisaical robes around them 
and in the act of looking down on others or refusing to forgive or pointing gleefully at the sins of other people to say, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that. No, you're worse. Gossip and criticism is worse in the eyes of God than adultery is. Don't think it's not. It is. Deuteronomy 32, 35, which Jesus quoted, says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He is sufficient for our needs because of his recompense, his judgment. You see, he delivers us from the need to strike back. He'll take care. He'll take care. Do you know what God says is the most damaging thing you can do to your enemy? Love him. God says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And he says, in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on their head. And friends, isn't it a liberating feeling to know that God is in charge? That God will take care of everybody? And that when you stand before God, you don't have to account for what anybody but you did. And that if anybody needs taking care of, the Lord will do that. Verse 19 affirms that there will come a day when all men will fear him. The word in the Hebrew used of fear is a word used to denote a very simple and direct childlike acknowledgement of someone's authority. Full acknowledgement. And it reminds me of Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Doubtless Paul was thinking of the servant songs in Isaiah when he wrote, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a very beautiful passage in verse 19. It has been translated here, for he will come like a rushing stream or wind which the wind of the Lord drives. And the phrase used here twice is the Hebrew phrase Ruach Yahweh, the wind of God. And it is a phrase that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. Remember that John, the apostle, was a Jew. And when he came to describe the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit is like the Ruach Yahweh, the wind of God, that blows where it will and no one can trace its course where it comes or where it goes. And the way the Hebrew is written, you must understand that Hebrew is a very basic language, just a step up from hieroglyphics. And the way it is written, this passage could be translated like this, that the Ruach Yahweh, the wind of God, will erect 
a banner, a standard in the river of our opposition. Now I was reminded of Israel when they crossed Jordan by Jericho. How one man from every tribe chose a stone from the riverbed and before the waters flowed back to their original place, they erected a standard, an altar in Jordan that rose above Jordan at flood stage when the waters returned. And they were to be reminded that those stones demonstrated the power of God in the face of any obstacle that his people faced. And I rather think that Isaiah had that in mind when he said the wind of God will raise a standard, a banner of victory, even in the face of a flood of opposition that would seem to overwhelm us. Isaiah affirms that God is in control no matter how strong the opposition may seem to be. He is sufficient because of his righteousness he erases our sin because of his recompense. He delivers us from the need for judgment and self-defense in dealing with other people. And then notice in verses 20 and 21, he is sufficient because of his redemption. These verses say, And a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of their offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. The word redeemer in the Hebrew denotes someone who went to the slave market and paid a price that a slave might be freed from slavery. This Hebrew word redeemer did not refer to a slave owner who bought a slave so that he might keep him as a slave, but as one who paid a price that another individual might go free. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, here is God speaking to his people. And now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk, through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And verse 3 says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, 
your Savior. He is sufficient because of his redemption. He does not just give us sympathy. He gives us help where help is needed. I love this passage in Isaiah 43. You know, it covers a great number of things that we fear. Waters, as we have seen in Peter, refer often in Scripture to the trials of life, the troubles or the judgment of God. And he says when you pass through the waters, the waters of affliction, of trial, of judgment, whatever it may be, they will not overflow you. When you pass through the rivers, in the Old Testament, Jordan was a picture of death. And the Old Testament and New Testament writers refer a passing through Jordan for Israel as a going from death unto life. When you go through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And even, he says, if you go through the fires of life, he doesn't say you won't be consumed. He doesn't say you won't be badly burned. He uses a word that literally translated would say the eyelashes of your face will not be singed. Now, is that enough? Is he sufficient? You know, sometimes it is only because of who and what God is within himself that we're delivered, not because we have faith. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Hasn't it been your experience that sometime when you're expecting awful things, a disaster, a calamity that you could not bear, God not only sustained you, but got you through it in such a glorious fashion that he preserved you completely without harm? or damage in any way. And you say, well, maybe that's not my experience. Then it is because you so resisted him that you would not let him do what he died and rose again to do in your heart. While I was at Glorietta this summer, I counseled with a young man and it brought back a flood of memory that at one time produced sadness and joy. For it was 11 years ago in late March that my father just dropped dead one day. In July, following that experience, I spent two weeks at Glorietta. And there God blessed me in a wonderful way. And as I counseled following one of the worship services with this boy from West Texas, he told me just about two months ago, my dad dropped dead. But God has blessed me so much. And he said almost the very words that our family said to one another, that we would not take him back in exchange for what God did for us in that experience. Now I suppose 
the most universal and devastating of all grief is the grief of losing someone you love, whoever it may be. But I would remind you that if you are not and have not and will not be comforted, it is because you resist the desire of God to do it. Do you know what it is to lose someone you love? So does God. And if you can think of a more tragic circumstance than your perfect and spotless and holy child dying a criminal's death on a cross, then you can imagine a circumstance that God has not experienced. He says, when you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you go through the fire, you will not be scorched if you'll just let him do what he wants to do and comfort you when you have a need, the great needs of life that face us. In Romans 11, 26, and 27, Paul quotes these two verses, verses 20 and 21, and applies them directly to the nation of Israel. He is illustrating God's help to all of us. Verse 21 is a very beautiful verse, for it talks about my covenant. Now, folks, there's never been a power in the universe that could overrule the direct command and promise of God. And so when God says, my covenant, my agreement, my promise, you may know that it is guaranteed and that it will come to pass simply because God said so. It is called in verse 21, the new covenant. It is a covenant with the converted, with those who repent with those who turn from their sins. And I am reminded that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are the eternal possessions of God's people, that they will never fail, that they will always be powerful. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never pass away. Jesus said very simply in another place, the Scripture cannot be broken. They are our mainstay. The Holy Spirit is our comfort. The Word of God is our guide. And they will always be with us. And God promises to meet all of our needs through them. Actually, this new covenant is a new administration of the, the covenant agreement God made with Abraham and with Jacob when he called for himself a people from the world to be uniquely his own. When will all of these things come to pass in their fullness? He says, my words which I have put in your heart will never leave your mouth or the mouth of your offspring forever. When will it all come in its fullness? It will happen when Christ comes again. He came the first time in shame to deal with sin by dying at the cross. 
and he will literally, physically, visibly come again in glory to establish his kingdom. The language used here is the same language used in Isaiah 9, 7 when he says that there will be no end to his kingdom. He is sufficient. Because of his righteousness, he puts away our sin. Because of his recompense, he delivers us from the need for vengeance. And because of his redemption, he has set us free to be uniquely his people for all time. And tonight I would ask, what do you face? What is the need? Where do you hurt? And I would affirm that Christ is sufficient for that need. If you will give him your life completely, hold nothing back, he will make your needs his own. He will bear your burdens and you and all that you are and all that you face will become his problem rather than yours. And Isaiah says the arm of the Lord, Jesus himself, will meet every need that you have. Join me for a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we may turn to your word and find there reflected an answer for everything that we face and a need for all that, that we have, Lord. You've met everything. You've provided it all. Father, I thank you for the awareness that there is no corner of the universe to which your love cannot reach. There is no possible circumstance that you cannot handle. And Lord, I just sense tonight the spirit of this people. It is a spirit of love and commitment to you, but Lord, it is a spirit of humanity for all of us have needs and all of us hurt in different ways. And I ask you tonight to make effective in our lives everything that you are for everything that we need. Father, as needs are met, some need to come to confess Christ as Savior publicly to say, I want to give my life to Jesus and I want to be saved. Some will need to come in response to your leadership to renew a vow of commitment. Lord, things have pushed you aside and we've had our priorities all mixed up. Some will need to come to say, I need to be active and involved. God wants me to be a part of the church. I pray tonight through your sufficiency, which is perfected in our weakness, you will wrap us in your arms and meet every need that we have. Thank you that you will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing as our hymn of invitation. One. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin 
had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Him 156, with an awareness that all you need is met in Jesus Christ. What he would have you do, do it right now, do it quickly as we stand and sing together.